Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks, we present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, John and I talked about days five and six of his cross-examination of Robert Durst. On today's episode, we continue the discussion of day six and move on to day seven of that cross. That's coming up right after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality is often not optimal. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. On today's episode, John Lewin discusses days six and seven of his cross-examination of Robert Durst. And we begin by looking at the moment that Lewin proposed to the defendant that when he is lying, he tends to add a lot of details to his testimony. Here is that excerpt of Lewin's Cross of Durst, as we presented it in Season 2, Episode 26 of Jury Duty, followed immediately by my conversation with John about that exchange. You've admitted to lying and committing perjury, correct? Correct. Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that you have found, when you personally lie and commit perjury, that you like to include a lot of details? Would you agree that's a fair assessment? In terms of including lots of details, I don't include more details than I think are necessary to answer a question. So, for instance, when you told Detective Strzok that you spoke to Kathy Durst on the night of January 31st, when she was back at Riverside Drive, you also had the detail that that occurred between 10.30 and 11, correct? I don't remember. Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that you also added the detail that she was watching the news? Yeah. That was a lie, right? That was a lie. And that was an extra detail, two details that you added to try to sell your story, correct? Correct. You include those details, Mr. Durst, because you found in your life of lying that when you include extra details like that, people tend to believe you more, right? I do not have a life of lying. Well, remember, on the facts, in this typical box, it's not just that he said he talked to Kathy. I talked to Kathy, and it was it would had to be between, you know, 11 because she was watching the news. Now, that's a very believable statement. 
right? Except for now Bob has said he never talked to her. So if he never talked to her, then she wasn't watching the news. So why'd you say that? Well, you said it because that's what Bob does. He tries to sell every lie with a bunch of details, as we talked about previously. That's why, you know, I got him. And I was just waiting for him to go, are you kidding me? But if you remember, I made him. So when Kathy came to the door, yeah, she came to the door. What foot did she put in first? I made him go through details that no human being would ever remember even five minutes later. They were irrelevant. No one would ever remember them. But Bob just walked into it. Her, She took her left foot, moved it 16 inches put it 47.5 degrees you know as if if i lie really specifically it'll make the bullshit i say believable i'm going to dive back in we talked a little bit about this on direct but you really went to town on him about the janine piero morris black connection that he opened up on direct and you know you played a bunch of his testimony from the direct back for bob and he basically just said i don't agree with your interpretation but he had no plausible response no because he's on tape saying it one of the neat things about this case was having video is extremely effective so when you can actually play back to somebody testimony that's just happened before lunch and confront them with it it is so much better than a transcript. You know, it's also why, if you look at the opening, we had, you know, the design of this case was Bob narrated my entire opening statement, right? So it wasn't me saying, hey, Bob is like this. Bob did this. I would say, and Bob Durst is going to tell you about, like, boom, and you would hear him. So it was never, I'm saying what the evidence is going to be. It was me literally playing what the evidence is going to be in advance. And that was true with the witnesses as well, because we already had stipulations on the conditional examination. So I knew what the evidence was going to show, what it was going to be, and I could play it because that was what's coming in. We had stipulations. So having this case on camera was a huge benefit to us. We now move on to day seven of Lewin's Cross of Durst, and we begin this section with an excerpt from that cross as presented in season two, episode 27 of Jury Duty, in which Lewin calls attention to Durst's statement that only Susan Berman's killer could have written the cadaver note. All right, I want to talk specifically about the cadaver note. You have now conceded, obviously, that you are the author of the cadaver note, correct? Correct. For 20 years, though, you adamantly denied writing the note, correct? For 20 years, I denied writing it. You denied that during interviews with Andrew Jarecki, correct? Correct. In addition to denying it, have you repeatedly stated, Mr. Durst, that whoever wrote the cadaver note had to be Susan's killer? I said that to Andrew. And, Mr. Durst, were you definitive in what you said about it? I don't know what you mean, was I definitive? RD 025-121310. I mean, first of all, somebody had a plan to do this. They had to go to her house, uh, do what they did. I mean, if I was going to rob somebody or burglarize a house, I wouldn't. And if, if you, they'd been in Susie's, and they wouldn't pick Susie because there was nothing there of value. I mean, I assume her. Jewelry was there. I have no idea if she hid it, but that's the wrong house to burglarize. 
And, and now you're taking this big risk. What's the risk? What? Which, which big risk? You're writing a note to the police that only the killer could have written. So I, I, I just, somebody would have to be my, my rabbi, although I don't see him getting involved in any kind of a killing, he might feel that it's that important that, the, that it be buried right away. But I think you've got to be pretty, pretty, pretty Jewish, religious to feel that way. That's what you said, correct, Mr. Durst? That's what I said. And at the time that you were saying to Andrew Jarecki that it was a note that only the killer could have written, you knew while you were saying that that you had written it, correct? Correct. And Mr. Durst, you also pointed out that the killer, you have to be pretty religious to feel that it's that important that Susan be buried right away. Do you recall saying that? Yeah. And Mr. Durst, you were saying that because you were aware that you're Jewish, correct, Mr. Durst? Correct. And Susan Berman is Jewish, correct? Correct. And you were aware that under Jewish tradition, the body has to be buried very quickly after death, correct? Correct. And you would have known that that would have been important to Susie, correct? Susan wasn't that religious, so I don't know. Well, Mr. Durst, you are someone who has expressed an interest in the Jewish religion, correct? Correct. And it would be important for you that Susan was buried, according to Jewish tradition, near the time that she was killed, correct? Correct. And Mr. Durst, you mentioned to Andrew Jarecki, you're the one who brought up the idea that this was a note that only the killer could have written, correct? I think he brought it up with me. Do you agree? I just played you a clip that had your voice and Andrew Jarecki speaking, and you would agree that clip is unedited, correct? That's what you said and that's what he said, correct? I accept that it's unedited. Okay, and in that clip, you were admitting, Mr. Durst, that the reason that you sent the cadaver note is that you wanted Susan's body recovered, correct? Correct. But Mr. Durst, you are disputing the idea that the first statement that you made, that it was a note that only the killer could have written, you're admitting that you said that, but you're now saying that isn't true. Is that correct? I'm saying I made that statement because Andrew Jarecki asked me to make that statement. Well, Mr. Durst, isn't it true that you said the same thing during your 2015 interview in New Orleans with me. I have no knowledge of saying what I told Andrew in 2010, being what I told you. RD 372-315-15. First of all, you agree, as you sit here today, you agree that whoever wrote that letter, they killed Susan. Agree? You see, I don't know that. I mean, Maybe there were two people who killed Susan. Okay. It didn't have to be one person. There could be two people. One, pe one person could go into the house to shoot Susan, and the other person could be the driver. Oh, oh, oh okay. No, let me, let me, this is what I mean. Whether the person was the shooter or the driver, whoever wrote the note was a part of killing her. Yes. You, you agree, right? Yes. No question, right? 
Whoever wrote that note had to be involved in Susan's death. Okay. That's what you said, correct, Mr. Durst? I told you what you wanted to hear. Well, isn't it true, Mr. Durst, that as you are making these statements, both times you're saying a note that only the killer could have written, that you are saying this, Mr. Durst, because you knew that, in fact, that was a note written by the killer. Isn't that why you said that? I did not know who the note written by the killer. Talk to me about that exchange. Well, I mean, there were a number of times where what Bob would do is Bob would say that, well, I only said that to Andrew because he gave me the script. So that was his go-to. Now, it became more and more absurd because it went from, you know, kind of one thing he wanted me to say to basically almost everything I said that was bad was scripted by Andrew. And you had 20 hours of interviews, so it's pretty absurd. How would that even, forgetting about the absurdity of it, but how would it even logistically happen? So what I started doing was, in addition to pointing out kind of the absurdity, was, well, wait a minute, you told me the same thing as well. And, of course, you know, he doesn't have an answer for that because, you know, there is no answer for it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the next part of my conversation with John Lewin, we discuss some of Robert Durst's statements regarding his supposed holiday plans with Susan, beginning with Durst's assertion that they were going to fly to San Francisco and visit an architect who was designing a house where they both could live. So there was this exchange regarding the architect, Mike Yoshida, and Bob trying to use that as an alibi for what he and Susan were meant to be doing during their staycation and then their trip up to San Francisco. And then he testified that Yoshida was dead. Tell me about your exchange with Bob about Mike Yoshida, the architect in San Francisco. So Mike Yoshida was the architect that Bob hired to do designs for the place that he bought, one of the two in San Francisco, the one that he was going to move into with Susan by Coy Tower, allegedly. Now, obviously, the first thing that you can kind of say to yourself when you're looking at the credibility of this assertion is, of course, Susan's never told anybody about it. Nobody. Susan, you know, talks a mile a minute. That doesn't make any sense. But the funny image is that when you think of Bob and how self-involved he is and how selfish he is, and particularly with his time, the idea that Bob is going to allow Susan Berman, one of the neediest people on earth, to live immediately below him, where he's going to have to deal with her 24-7, I mean, it's so funny, it's laughable. Then you combine that with the fact that, of course, this has never come out anywhere. It's not true. But Bob did what he always does. 
is he said, you know, Mike Yoshida's dead. Because let's face it, Bob's M.O. is, I told my dead friend. I told my dead lawyer. I told my live lawyer, but he can't talk because of privilege. I told my wife. In other words, almost every exculpatory statement that he gives or information that he has, the person that can prove it, we can't call to testify. So Bob clearly thought that Yoshida was dead. So Bob brings this up on direct examination. Now, remember, they have never mentioned calling Yoshida in this case. Never mentioned him. I know who he is, and I have not reached out to him because prior to Bob bringing it up, he was irrelevant. Because you have to remember kind of how this case works out. So Mike Yoshida is designing the house. That's legitimate. The house is completely irrelevant to my case. It doesn't have any connection to it. It only ends up having a connection to the case when Bob makes up some crazy bullshit about, you know, Susan. And obviously, there's no way in advance that I can know that until Bob ends up on his own bringing it up. So what you have to do when you're trying this case is Bob comes up with this bullshit. You don't know it's coming. It's mo it's always lies, but then you have to go, okay, what can I do to disprove this latest lie? So Bob brings up Yoshida on direct. As soon as he brings up Yoshida on direct, I go and I find Yoshida. Now, here's the good part for me. It is not a witness that I'm calling. Bob has mentioned this witness. So I can call this witness, and because they are not a witness that I'm calling in my case, unless they provide exculpatory information. So let's say that I call up Yoshida on the phone, and Yoshida backs up everything that Bob says. If that happens, then I have to disclose that to Bob. So there is always a risk when you're going to contact a witness that they're going to say something that you have to turn over. Now, as a prosecutor, because I want to get to the truth, I'm never worried about that because I'm not worried. The truth is the truth. However, you have to be careful when the person that you're contacting is aligned with the defense and that maybe they are setting this up so that this person is going to give a lying statement to the prosecution and the police, which makes it seem more credible than if they just call the witness. So that's the situation I'm in, and I end up deciding at that point, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to call this guy because there's no indication that he's in any way associated with Bob. I'm going to try to locate him, and I can't find him. I leave messages with his daughter. I don't even know if he's alive. I end up getting a call back from Mike telling me he's alive, and, of course, everything that Bob said is bullshit. He has no memory of any of it. It's not accurate. They did not meet at that time. So I decide I could have called him, but I'm going to wait. I'm going to let Bob dig into this. And that's what they do. So they take the bait, they continue on with it, and then at a certain point in time, when Bob ends up mentioning that Yoshida is dead on cross-examination, I'm able to tell the defense he's alive, stipulate to it, and Bob looks like a lying sack of shit, and the defense looks lazy and incompetent because apparently Bob is saying that, that he's dead, because they told him he was dead. So the Yoshida thing was great. Because basically, it was yet another trap that we laid out for Bob in the defense, and they fell into it, you know, all the way up to their shoulders. So Bob said that he told Stuart Altman that he had found Susan's body, but it was unclear to him whether it was in Stuart's capacity as his lawyer or as his friend. He also told Susie Giordano that same thing shortly after his arrest in New Orleans, but he claims he never told Emily Altman that. Take me through 
your cross-examination about the issue of who he told, that he was in L.A. and that he discovered Susan's body? So the problem for Bob is that Emily has already testified that Bob told her this. And Emily tries to take it back and say that, no, she probably didn't hear it from Bob. She heard it from Stewart. That had no credibility at all. It was made worse by the fact that then Stewart tried to get her to change her testimony. And then when Stewart came in to testify, Stewart said, not only did I not tell Emily that Bob told me that, Bob never told me that. So basically what we're left with is Bob made a damaging statement to Emily about where he was, and everybody else's lines tried to protect him. So it could not have turned out any better for our team than it did. He also threw Susie Giordano under the bus because during her examination by you, she categorically said Bob never told her that he discovered Susan Berman's body. So it's very clear that Susie perjured herself. I mean, numerous ways. This is yet another one that Bob had told her and she lied about it under oath. But the problem for Bob, when all said and done, this is a typical Bob move. Bob is extremely upset with Emily because Emily, the quote, babbling idiot, unquote, is saying that Bob told her he was at the Beverly Hilton. And Bob is focusing on the fact that I was never at the Beverly Hilton, and that's wrong. Well, in focusing on the fact that he, quote, wasn't at the Beverly Hilton, instead of saying I wasn't in Los Angeles, what he ends up, the inference that he created was she got the hotel wrong. So again, his lies and responses make a bad situation worse. Because let's face it, it's very clear that Bob ends up admitting later that I was in Los Angeles. So even if you believe everything he said, which of course none of it's true, but if you believe all of it, he is still admitting that he was in Los Angeles at the time. And what you're kind of left with is Emily is lying, but it turns out she's completely correct. You know, she got lucky in essence. And that's a pretty difficult tale to spin and to get any credibility out. So he's now up on the stand, and I'm confronting him with all of this. And, of course, he's got nothing in any way that he can say to get him out of it. And everything that he mentions just makes it worse. Again, that was the theme of his entire clock. Bob is already lying. I got him on 10 lies. And to get out of the 10 lies, he tells an 11th lie doesn't get him out of the 10 other lies and is even less credible than what he said before. He just never knew when to stop digging. He just dug it worse and worse and worse. You know, in their testimony, both Stuart and Susie seem to have lied about what they were told. And, you know, we've seen national figures prosecuted for perjury, much less significant things. When you say Stuart lied, Stuart, I think, did lie about certain issues in the case, not as blatantly as Susie Giordano or Emily lied. But I think what you're emphasizing is I believe that Bob never told Stuart what Emily said Stuart told her. So, in other words, what happened is, is Emily told the truth about Bob telling her what he said. Emily then realizes that Stuart's, you know, insistence that she's got to undo this. Thing. So, in an effort to undo this thing, she ends up saying that, well, I didn't hear it from Bob. I heard it from Stuart. It's asinine. That's another example of Emily just trying to cover up what she's done, like Bob does, by coming up with something, the same thing that Bob does. The next lie is worse than the last one. So when Stewart gets up and he testifies, I never told Emily that, and Bob never told me that, I think that's probably true. 
because I don't think Bob has any reason to admit to Stewart what he's done. I don't think he does. And if he did, I don't think Stewart is going to tell Emily because Stewart knows Emily's issues and Emily's got a big mouth. And so I think that Stewart was being honest about that on the stand. I think he lied about other things, but I think he was likely concerned. He's a licensed lawyer. And although I do believe he perjured himself about different things, I think he was not going to obviously perjure himself to the same degree that Emily did. So your question about perjury. In my career, in almost 30 years as a prosecutor, I have only heard of one situation where a witness was prosecuted for perjury for something they said at a trial. So in other words, perjury is not uncommon. We have cases all the time where people are charged with perjury or what they wrote in a document for something they said under oath. You know, it's common, you know, you lied on this bank loan, et cetera. But you don't see people prosecuted for you committed perjury in your testimony. So the problem is you, A, have to show that it's material, the lie, and, B, you have to show that they committed perjury. So let's talk about Susie Giordano for a second. How do you prove that she committed perjury? Well, the way you prove she committed perjury is basically you have to use Bob Durst. So how can I use Bob Durst to prove perjury when he himself has committed all kinds of perjury? So in essence, that's not something that was going to be prosecuted. At this point in our chat, I pivot back to day five of Lewin's cross-examination of Durst because I want him to give a more complete analysis of his questioning of Durst about whether he told Morris Black about the fact that Janine Pirro was investigating him. The following excerpt from the Durst trial is drawn from season two, episode 25 of Jury Duty. Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that you told Morris Black that you were basically hiding in Galveston because you did not want to be Robert Durst anymore, correct? Correct. And you told him that that was your name, correct? Correct. And you ended up telling him that you were wealthy, correct? I think he figured out I was wealthy. And the conversation we had when I talked about traveling first class. And you would agree, Mr. Durst, that Morris Black was somebody who was very into figuring out what somebody's kind of story was, who they were, what was motivating them. You don't think that describes Morris Black? No. And you said that as far as you know, you never mentioned anything about the situation with your missing wife, correct? Correct. Mr. Durst, do you remember the other day during direct examination mentioning, this is a paraphrase, you told Morris Black all about Janine Pirro? No. One moment. Do we have that queued up and ready to go? Well, when was the first time he saw you as Bob Durst? And not as Dorothy Siner with Sometime the Sometime in March or April. All right. Did he make any remarks about that? I told him that I sometimes wore the skies as a woman because I just did not want to be me. And he said he went through that a while ago. In other words, not wanting to be you, not wanting to be Bob Durst. Did you explain to him why you didn't want to be Bob Durst? Primarily because of Janine Pirro. Well, you said it, correct, Mr. Durst? 
I said it. Well, so that means, Mr. Durst, that Morris Black was well aware who you were, what you were running from, and that you were very concerned about being charged in New York with your wife's murder, correct? No, not correct. That, that no. doesn't. Please explain, Mr. Durst, since you just said in response to your lawyer's question, not mine, to your lawyer's question, that you explained all about Janine Pirro. What did that mean? That, that misstates the, the evidence that was just on the screen. Object okay. to the form of the question. Garen, didn't say anything about all about. It's the evidence and the inferences one can draw from the evidence that make a question appropriate. Your objection is overruled. I don't think it would have been possible to explain to Morris Black about a Westchester district attorney charging me with murder in order to get publicity to run for attorney general. Morris Black was just not like that. Well, Mr. Durst, all it would have taken for you to explain it are the words you just said. Would you agree? But he was not like that. Mr. Durst, you testified under oath that you told Morris Black about Janine Pirro. What did you tell him? I don't remember telling him about Janine Pirro. Well, you remember telling about Janine Pirro last week with Mr. DeGarren, correct? Correct. Isn't it true, Mr. Durst, that you are dead caught in a giant lie right now and you have no idea what to say? Objection. The answer question. No, 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 and no. The objection's overruled. The sure. answer may stand. So, I think I've said this before. One of the smart arguments that Chip Lewis made was he basically said to the judge about the issues with the admission of the Morris Black stuff. He says, judge, the problem with it in the end is the prosecution, they can prove that Morris knew Bob's name. They can prove that Morris knew Bob was wealthy, both things that Bob had said, but they can't prove that Morris knew the situation with Kathy, why Bob was running all the Unique Puro stuff. And that was true. We could not prove it directly. The judge ended up adopting our view of the evidence, which was judge. They're saying that they are in going to the library every day. Morris is looking at all the news. Bob has already told Morris this information, including that he didn't want to be Bob Durst anymore. So it's a reasonable inference based on the evidence for the jury to conclude that Morris Black did know Bob was. And in the end, they can argue, well, they haven't proven it directly, and argue, well, we have proven it circumstantially. And obviously, if the jury believes their point that it has not been proven, then there's no damage because the jury's not going to believe it. This is a typical thing that happens with defense attorneys. So defense attorneys will frequently make the argument when there's a piece of evidence that we want to bring in, prosecution wants to bring in a piece of evidence, and the defense will say, Your Honor, that evidence is flawed because it isn't true. So that's different from the prejudice where they will say, Your Honor, we don't want you to bring in our defendant's prior drug conviction. They're not saying the drug conviction isn't true. They're saying it coming in is unduly prejudicial. The argument they will make in situations like I'm talking about is they're saying, listen, that piece of evidence that the prosecution wants to bring in, it's not true, Your Honor, and they can't prove it. 
So my response is always, wait a minute, how can it be prejudicial to your client if you're saying this is complete bullshit and you can't prove it? So the argument is simply, hey, judge, the only way this evidence hurts the defendant is if the jury decides that it's true. And if they decide it's true, then it should hurt the defendant. The defense is saying it's completely untrue for X reasons. Well, then tell the jury that. And in fact, Your Honor, if you even want to instruct the jury specifically that the defense is contending that this specific evidence is untrue, before you can use the evidence in this case, you have to decide that the evidence is even true. And that's kind of the instruction they get with 1101B evidence. So basically, the defense is saying, in this case, Morris never knew the situation with Janine Pirro and why Bob was running with Kathy Durst. He never knew that. We're saying, hey, judge, he did know it, and we can prove it circumstantially. Now, the bottom line is, in 90% of the time, the reason they don't want it in is because it is accurate. And it does impact their client, but it's not prejudice in terms of the legal definition of prejudice, which is unfairly prejudicial. It is damaging. Damaging is not synonymous with prejudice. And unfortunately, there's a lot of evidence that's damaging. Bob dismembering Morris, the defense called it prejudicial. It wasn't prejudicial. It was very damaging evidence. Well, unfortunately, Bob dismembered him. There's issues with him potentially dismembering Kathy. There's issues with Morris being a witness. So, unfortunately, you're stuck with the evidence that you created. So, I'm sorry, Bob Durst, that you dismembered Morris Black, and then that's very incriminating, but that's not unduly prejudicial. Right. And then he stepped right into it by mentioning Janine Pirro in his direct examination. Yeah. So, what happens is Chip has made this argument, and we've won. The judge has gone our way, which he should have. But, listen, it's a decent argument he's got. The problem is, is as usual, Bob on direct, not really thinking, because remember, the kind of lying that Bob does is Bob doesn't do really sophisticated lying where he really goes through and weighs everything and thinks about what he said before. That's not Bob's specialty. Bob's specialty are very detailed lies. They sound really good coming out because he has a bunch of detail, etc., but he doesn't think about the overall what else is out there, etc. So on direct, Bob makes one of his typical Bob mistakes, and he just mentions in response to Dick's question. He literally said, the question is something like, you know, and what did you tell Morris Black? And he says about the whole Janine Pirro thing. And it's very clear that DeGuerin doesn't even pick up how bad it is, and Bob doesn't pick up how bad it is. I'm listening going, oh, my God, they just knocked out yet another one of their big points. Was Chip in court that day? I don't know if Chip was in the courtroom or not, and this is my own speculation. Chip was the smartest lawyer on their team. And it's very clear that Chip, I think, would have tried this case much differently. I think it became difficult when you have better ideas than the other lawyers on the team, but you're not the one making the decision. It must be incredibly frustrating. And I think, and again, it's my impression that that's what happened to Chip, that, you know, after a while, when all the decisions that are being made are, you know, probably not the same decisions you would have made, that eventually you're like, don't want to deal with this. So anyway, that's what I think happened. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin and I begin our deep dive into day eight of his cross-examination of the defendant Robert Durst, including the jailhouse call in which he suggests that he might falsely implicate his brother and father in the murder of his wife. 
Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. <laughs>